Welcome to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Hello, this is Tim Reedy from America Magazine, sitting in for Father Matt Malone, who's traveling this week. And I am joined today by my colleague, Kevin Clark. Welcome, Kevin. Uh, thanks for having me here, Tim. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting now. I'm also sitting in. I'm sitting in for Carrie Weber, who is on maternity leave. Uh, God bless her and her new ones. New one, I should say. Her, her, she's got one that's not so, you know, still kind of <laughs> new. So two new ones. Uh, so welcome to America This Week, uh, where we speak each week. Uh, we offer the news and analysis from the intersection of the church and the world gathered by the crack editorial team at America Magazine. And speaking of which, <laughs> we have Ashley McKinless here with us today, one of our crack editors. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not old I, enough to I, be I a senior editor. I usually go by associate editor. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a new title we should try out. Crack editors. Crack editors. Yeah. Take it. <laughs> Uh, happy to be here, guys. Good. Well, today we're going to spend some time with John W. Miller, an author who's written a piece for us, As Their Parents Go Older, Who Will Care for People with Disabilities? Now, John's a former reporter for the Wall Street Journal, which uh, is just around the corner here. And uh, he writes, he does a thoroughly reported piece um, from his hometown of Pittsburgh, looking at some of these communities that house people with disabilities, um, kind of small communities, 10, 12 people, some of the challenges they're facing in an environment where there's, um, you know, not as many housing options, uh, people are living longer, not able to live with their parents. So these places are in high demand. And uh, John, are you there? I'm there. Hi, guys. Now, uh, John, we just talked last week, I guess it was on Facebook Live, about this article. So um, maybe you can begin by just, how, how did you find this story? Like, you're you're based out of Pittsburgh. This is a Pittsburgh community. Maybe you can start by talking about the Mayus community and how you found this found these folks. Yeah, so I ran into Karen Jacobson uh, socially, and she's the executive director uh, of Emmaus, which is a, a group home community in Pittsburgh that takes care of 37 people with disabilities, 22 of whom live uh, in houses that the, the community owns. And um, Karen was talking about the challenges she faces trying to run this community and um, how difficult it is to find people who are willing to work for the wages that uh, they can afford to pay. It's quite expensive to take care of people with disabilities because standards are higher now than they used to be. Um, and they the, the budget for their, their community is, is $4 million a year, uh, and that's taking care of only 22 people. And that just sparked my interest in like the, the economics and the real life of people with Down syndrome and other disabilities. And I got curious and, and talked to you guys about it and came up with the story. One of the things I found uh, really interesting about your piece is that there are challenges that, uh, that people who are providing this care are facing now, but they're kind of the result of some good news. Um, 50 years ago, people with intellectual or developmental disabilities were in large institutions where the standard of care was probably a lot lower and they were living for a, a lot less time. And because of medical advances, there are now people with these disabilities that are living for much longer time. Um, so, yeah, so is would you say that, things are better now than they were 50 years ago? Yeah, that's right. And, and you, you alluded to um, increased life expectancy. And, for example, people with Down syndrome, it's gone from um, around 30 to around 60 in only, in only a few decades. And I didn't know that. And it's mainly because of it improved care for uh, heart, heart issues, which people with Down syndrome have. Um, and obviously, that, that's a good thing. Um, and the standards have, have increased. Uh, as you pointed out, there's been a societal change in, in 
what expectations are for people with intellectual disabilities. And I find it very interesting that a lot of it's been driven by, by Catholic thinkers, like Jean Vanier, who started the, the large communities, and this idea that people with disabilities need uh, daily contact with people they know, they need community, they need people who care for them in a genuine human way, even if they can't reciprocate in the ways that we understand to be normal. Uh, they still need that kind of, of love and attention around them. And so that's spiraled over into uh, care for um, all, in all kinds of communities, not just Catholic. Uh, and very few people now still live in institutions. Um, and the group home model has taken over, and it's what people expect now. Uh, and it is more expensive, too, uh, but it comes along with higher quality of care. The question is, how are we going to pay for this in the future? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm old enough. And this might be giving away too much about how old I actually am. But I remember young Geraldo Rivera uh, in the early yeah. 70s uh, with his Willowbrook es- exposés, which were a shock to the entire nation. Uh, of course, what was happening in Willowbrook, New Jersey, was happening all over the country where uh, people with um, uh, at the time referred to as mentally retarded with developmental disabilities were warehoused quite literally with very uh, poor uh, support or no support uh, and and really inhuman conditions. So, uh, you know, it's great that we've transitioned from that to this group home uh, model, uh, John, but have we as a society properly financed that transition? A, a lot of activists, by the way, point to that Geraldo piece, which I had never heard of before, as changing the game, yeah. along with One one Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, the Ken Casey novel yeah. and movie that was made out of it. Um, right. So right now there are 5.1 million people in America with intellectual disabilities of some sort and three and a half million to live with their families. Um, and the question is, who will take care of them uh, when the people taking care of them, their families get older and can no longer take care of them or, or, or die? Um, and that's not clear. Uh, public spending on people with disabilities, intellectual disabilities, has gone from $25 billion in 2000 to $65 billion, uh, today. Um, and the, the funding model is mainly through Medicaid, and it attaches a dollar amount to each individual person. So if you're a group home and you take care of somebody, you get that amount, which can, can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Um, and it's not clear there's enough money to do that for the 3.5 million people still living with their families. Uh, and the, the funding has to come from the government because this is not something where there's a private incentive to build more homes. It's not like old age homes where if somebody spends a few years in an old age home and then dies and vacates a space for somebody else. People with disabilities live for decades. And and, and, and it just says in a very like dispassionate, non-cynical way, it's hard to, to make money uh, running group homes for people with disabilities. And so there's no incentive to build more homes. So the public, the public sector has to step in. Now, now um, Ashley mentioned this. I think it's worth highlighting, though, that like Specifically, for example, people with Down syndrome, their lifespan, you know, in the last 20 years has ex- has gone up by like over 20 years. I mean, it, it's really a remarkable shift. It's remarkable and it's wonderful. And it also means at the same time that they're outliving some of the people taking care of them. Exactly, right. And I mean, I, I mentioned the public sector, but the, the, the churches obviously are uh, another um, organization that, that can help. Um, my point being that the economics are not self-explanatory to help take care of these people. For folks who aren't uh, familiar with Jean Vanier and L'Arche, can you could you talk a little bit about what that movement is? Absolutely. So um, I, I actually discovered this whole sort of way of life by volunteering at a large community in Alabama when I was in my early 20s in college. And Jean Vanier was a, a Catholic thinker, and he, he's still alive. He's in his late 90s. He's a Catholic thinker and philosopher um, who thought about the priesthood and uh, uh, did not become a priest, but started these communities where people with disabilities live in community with people um, who um, uh, don't have disabilities. Uh, and the idea, the, the idea being that um, everybody is exposed in the same way, and that 
somebody with a disability, even if they appear to be uh, dysfunctional in some ways, have the same uh, needs of the heart. And also expose um, the brokenness that uh, you know, afflicts every human being in terms of needing care and compassion. And there's a whole philosophical message that comes out of these communities that I, I, I find very appealing and I think um, has something to say to the, um, all society. Actually, I went to a preschool. It was a public preschool, um, but the one I went to, it, it was kind of the same model. Model. It was half people with developmental, developmental. I can't speak. Developmental. <laughs> developmental disabilities, yeah. and um, people like me who have other <laughs> radio challenged people. <laughs> um, but no, it, it did. It introduced me in in a really wonderful way. Um, 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 to this community, um, so and so you've you've obviously gotten to speak with a lot of these um, men and women, um, and what do they what do they want in terms of care? So the the um, the story is about a, a man in his fifties who has severe autism, and he still lives with his family, and he wants to go live at Emmaus, which by the way was founded by people who were inspired directly by Jean Vanier, um, and he's on a state waiting list in Pennsylvania and can't get a spot there. Um, he wants to be with his friends and with people who are kind of his peers. Um, I visited a home with uh, two women who have uh, both have Down syndrome, and they have a, a gym in their basement, and they have 24-hour care, uh, and they have jobs, uh, bagging groceries and tasks like that. Um, and they're very content, and they say they like the lifestyle they have. Um, and so I think their, their happiness is obvious to somebody else who has those disabilities, like um, Bob, the main character in my story. I, I'll just quickly mention the Jean, the Jean Vanier uh, story is told somewhat uh, this uh, uh, in the last few months in a documentary that was released recently called Summer Summer in the Forest. Summer in the Forest. Yeah, we yeah. reviewed that uh, a and bit about the community. Yeah. yeah. The the folks that are, are are following this this group home model um, and 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 trying, I, I presume, to um, help these folks live life to the f- the fullest extent possible uh, for them. What are they are they concerned that uh, they're looking at a future of reduced public support? And uh, you mentioned it's so difficult to find staff. I think in the article you talk about the h- very high turnover because of the low pay. Uh, are we, you know we're very we like to talk about ourselves as a pro life society, but is this kind of an example of where um, our our, our um, self-image kind of breaks down on the, on the reality of, of social costs. There, there's a fair amount of frustration uh, with, with the funding because the standards that are imposed um, on these communities are high, and there's a lot of paperwork, um, and some of it seems reasonable and some of it doesn't. Um, but along with those, those high standards is uh, not always the money they need. They, they would like to expand and Take more people off the the waiting list, in, in, including Bob. Um, they don't they don't have the funds, and they have to uh, scrap around to um, find enough money to balance their books at the at the end of each year. And they, they fundraise privately, um, and it's still not enough. So th- I think uh, there's a breaking point at some point where uh, this. I mean, I was shocked at the, the the dollar amount. I mean, sixty five billion dollars is a lot of money, and you never hear it mentioned in public debates. You never hear anything said about people with disabilities, this kind of disability, and there's over 5 million of them. Does that um, all come out of the Medicaid budget, the $65 billion? So the way it works is that the, the, the Medicaid money uh, goes to the states, and the states allocate it uh, in different ways. 
um, and they create they create conditions. And a family take some families taking care of people uh, of their own family members um, are eligible to receive funding through Medicaid uh, as long as they meet the conditions. Um, and yes, it's just, so it is through Medicaid. John, um, what do you tell? Uh, people who ask you that question in terms of how how do they find help? Uh, you know, maybe you maybe you know some uh, parents who are reaching uh, uh, that point in their lives where they're beginning to be concerned about uh, their adult children with uh, developmental disabilities and and what's going to become of them after they pass. What uh, what advice have you got for folks? So um, every city in America has uh, group homes of some sort, um, and there's. Um, uh, there's been a growth in this kind of um, community. Uh, they often offer um, shorter-term stays, even if you can't get a full-term residency. The main character in my story, Bob, uh, spends weekends at Emmaus. Even if he can't live there full-time, he finds friendship and community, community there. Um, if, if you have means, uh, you can hire somebody. And there are people who, who do this kind of work. Um, it's, it's hard to get somebody who will commit to staying for a long time because, again, the wages are, are not very high. Um, but I guess the, the number one thing is to seek out that kind of community. And then um, the, the, the legal options are there to receive funding from the state if you take care of somebody yourself and to get home help. It's a question of, of understanding the paperwork and, and doing jumping through the hoops. There's a fair amount of bureaucratic work to be done uh, to get funding to, have to get home help for somebody in your family who has disabilities living with you. So even if you've been caring with uh, caring for someone uh, in your home uh, family member for, for a very long time, it would behoove you to start doing some proactive uh, advanced planning, checking with your social welfare bureaucracy, and, and see what's available, see what you can get right. lined up for. And, and to be realistic about what's going to happen in, in, in 10 or 20 years, um, Dave Matzik, who's the, the brother of Bob, who I profile in the story, um, he's in his early 60s. and. Uh, Bob's been living living with him for four years, and uh, they have a home help, and, and they have means, and, and they get along. But Dave also knows that this can't persist into his 70s and 80s, that yeah. uh, when you yourself are, are slowing down, it's harder to take care of somebody. And so he, he advocates being proactive about that kind of th- about, about that situation. So I would also advise uh, listeners um, to be realistic about what will happen in 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's I think we should point out that Bob wants to move too. I mean, he wants to be independent. He wants to have a place of his own. So that's that's part of the calculation too. Is that he he doesn't necessarily want to be living with his family. The the, the family likes to tease him about how they're going to come with him and live at a, live in Emmaus <laughs> with him. And to th- to that he says, "N O no." <laughs> that was another uh, another interesting part of your article that ha- I had just never thought about. Um, the in terms of the labor issues uh, when it comes to people with Down syndrome, um, how automation might affect their ability to be independent and have jobs. Um, I know where where I grew up. Um, uh, people with disabilities were often working at the grocery store. The um, checkout line. But yeah. now, you know, now we have automatic or self-checkout. They, or they tricked us all into checking ourselves out, <laughs> yeah. which I really <laughs> still annoyed by. Yeah. So, so do you see that see that as a as a problem coming down the line? Uh, so there's a couple things there. Um, one of the characters in the story is this guy John Maltby, who's a former Goldman Sachs commodities trader, who I might have interviewed when I was at the Wall Street Journal, and who has a son with disabilities, and he's dedicated himself to becoming an expert and how to care with people with intellectual disabilities. And so he advocates some limited automation on the, on the care side where things like dispensing medication or even like a self-driving vehicle could be used to help a person with disabilities live out their daily life. He says you still need the human care and contact and love that machines can't do that, which I think is a moral lesson for all of us too. 
Um, a lot of tasks uh, that people with Down syndrome could do, like bag groceries, could be automated on the, on the work side. Um, but I think that's a problem that afflicts uh, anybody who works with their hands, uh, not just people with disabilities, and is part of a wider question in society. But I do agree that it's a challenge and a risk. Yeah. This is kind of going off or separate from what you wrote about in your piece, um, but it's hard to talk about uh, Down syndrome without bringing up uh, the fact that in this country, 70% of of, of uh, unborn children diagnosed with Down syndrome are actually aborted, um, often because of fears family have about the cost of care. Um, is and that... in some European societies now, we, we see a lot of, you know, almost proudly designating themselves mm -hmm. as 0% Down syndrome uh, yeah. because of abortion and, and interventions before a, a, a baby comes to term. Uh, and there's almost a sense that there there seems to be growing pressure on young on parents to to not have a child with that that's going to have uh, you know social costs as, as it might be described. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I confess I, I wish I would have gotten to that issue uh, more in this story. Um, it just seemed like a whole separate story. It is really important, and I think the message that places like Emmaus and and Jean Vanier's community send is that there is tremendous value, if you want to use that word in the lives of people with, with Down syndrome and in watching how their hearts operate and in learning the wisdom that comes from, from observing those communities. Um, I asked a few people about this, and you know the, the, the facts are out there. It is a thing happening in society. I don't think anybody on the community side has an answer to that except to um, advocate against it. Yeah. Ohio recently pa or passed and then a b judge blocked a bill that would have uh, outlawed uh, abortion that was driven by uh, the diagnosis diagnosis of Down syndrome, um, but you mentioned uh, the the you know kind of the witness that uh, people with Down syndrome give to you know love and joy. Um, can you talk about your own experience at the Larsh community and and what you got from that? So I I, I was I guess twenty one or twenty two, and um, it was a very very moving and. and uh, interesting week. I didn't know anything about it and signed up through my, my college, Mount St. Mary's, and went down there. And I remember I, I was um, juggling some balls and thinking I would impress one of the people there with Down syndrome by, by juggling. And the, the, the home director, he stopped me and he said, you know, um, she doesn't care what you can do. She only cares if you can be her friend. Hmm. And here, here I was trying to show off my, my juggling skills. Um, and the nuns who were living in the home gave me a bunch of uh, tapes in French. I, I speak French. and They gave me a bunch of sermons, um, well, not sermons, but speeches by Jovanier to translate. And I'd never heard anything like it. I mean, the, 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 the gentleness and the voice and, and the wisdom made me think, wow, there's something very powerful going on here um, in, the, in the, the philosophy and the community of these homes. And I was sort of, you know, became fascinated for life by Jovanier, as I imagine a lot of other people have, too. Now, there's another element, perhaps, that uh, uh, maybe another story down the road, John, is, and Kevin and I were just talking about this during the break, um, you know, families, we've talked a lot, families with people with Down syndrome, but autism, obviously, we're seeing um, increased rates um, in the country today in terms of long-term care for that community. Is that something else that is going to pose a challenge down the road? Uh, so the, the main character in the story, uh, Bob, his official diagnosis is, is severe autism. Um, I uh, suspect that seems clear. I mean, anybody who uh, can't fend for themselves in the society that we're building is going to need um, assisted care, and I think you could consider to be uh, intellectually 
or developmentally disabled in terms of coping with society. Um, I don't know enough about the, the spectrum of, you know, the, the, the kid who struggles a little bit versus the kid who um, has trouble, you know, putting on his shoes. Um, but it definitely uh, is worth looking into. You mentioned people not being able to cope with society. Do, did you come across anything that, like, we could change in society as a whole that would make it easier to integrate people with Down syndrome and not have to, you know, put them in in group homes, or even if they are in group homes, to, to have them be more integrated and so that more people have a chance to interact with them? I mean, I, I grew up in, in Brussels, and I'm always struck living in the States now about the lack of shared public spaces uh, in America uh, versus in Europe. Um, and so creating areas where people of all kinds uh, hang out, having more public transportation, I mean, having more, um, you know, <laughs> idealistic sounding, but more more shared public spaces in general for everybody, I think. I mean, like uh, the good old uh, town square. The plaza, That we yeah. like to pretend we all uh, experienced or growing at, up. At least, at, at least the shopping mall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are going too, yeah. Well, it does seem like we, we find ways to segregate people with different developmental capacities in, in terms of, you know, finding an employer who's willing to hire them. Well, suddenly that place has got most of the developmentally disabled folks that are working there so you really have to oh, well I'm going to I'm I'm going to make a conscious decision to go uh, patronize that that store that business because of what they do mm-hmm. and we don't we we really haven't seemed to figure out how to integrate you know a little more thoughtfully or comprehensively mm-hmm. I guess well you mentioned this John in our conversation last week uh being more proactive and you know reaching out to these communities that exist perhaps in your neighborhood, and finding a way to volunteer, like you did. So there are opportunities out there, correct? Uh, there are, and there's a need for it, and it's uh, enriching for the person volunteering just as much as it is for the, the people who are being helped. And it's anything from just, you know, hanging out with them, going to a ball game, I mean, that sort of thing? Yeah, that's right. Um, they uh, want people who will be friends to people with um, Down syndrome other disabilities, so it means going to the pool on a summer day or taking them to the movies when it's colder out in the winter, um, developing relationships. Uh, and that part does not have to be um, bureaucratic. You have to demonstrate, obviously, goodwill and that um, you're doing it for the right reasons. But I don't think you have to fill out a bunch of paperwork to volunteer once a week at a place like Emmaus. Yeah. You also, this is another, you had a lot of parts to your piece that were fascinating, but you also go into the labor issues facing people who work at these homes who are often um, either immigrants or uh or women working part-time jobs to support their families. Um, so what, what challenges do they face? So one of the most poignant lines in the story, I think, is Karen Jacobson, the director of Emmaus, who says, um, our residents sometimes do better than their, care- their caretakers, meaning the people with Down syndrome have better lives and more comfortable lives uh, than the people taking care of them. I mean, the, the pay is dictated by straight economics that um, they... Uh, hire low-skilled low people and pay them 10 or 11 or $12 an hour. Um, and uh, there's no real career path, and so there's no real investment uh, by people in their, in their teens and, and, and 20s who might go into nursing or a profession like that. There's no real thought of, oh, maybe, maybe I'll have a career uh, working with, with group homes, people with disabilities, because there's no money there. And so it ends up being transient workers, people from temp agencies, uh, Im- immigrant workers or women. One of the people in the story is a 70-year-old woman who's raising her um, uh, granddaughter 
an Af- African American woman named Gloria Vonda, who's ra- raising her granddaughter, um, and has no choice but to take a. Je- she, I mean, she's overqualified. She has a master's degree in library science, um, but she can't exact hi- higher wages because the money's not there uh, on the Mayo side to pay more, and there isn't enough supply that the wages stay depressed. And it's 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 harmful for people uh, who are living in the community because if somebody comes for a few days and then leaves. It's uh, stressful for them, uh, and then they have somebody new comes back, and they're, they're coping with issues like um, using the bathroom properly or sexual impulses they don't understand or um, you know, being fed by people who they don't always know, and that creates more stress if, so, if it's a transient, wor- a transient worker. So consistency uh, and predictability are so important in that lifestyle, but that's one of the things that are completely lacking, giving the, the pay scale that uh, the federal and state supports allow to take place. Yeah, that's right. And people like Karen, they would like to have a, a proper career structure, have the, have the funding to pay for it uh, for the people who are their caretakers. Well, again, John, uh, thank you for this report. Again, you can find it at americamagazine.org slash Sirius. The, the title, again, is As Their Parents Get Older, Who Will Care for People with Disabilities? John Miller, uh, we look forward to your next piece for us. Yeah, likewise. Well, it was great talking to you guys. All right, thanks. Great, thanks. Well, Ashley and Kevin, I mean, I, as you were saying, there's so much to this story. There's, you know, when he pitched it to us, I felt like immediately I said yes, because I felt like, wow, there's just, it's telling the story, not just the people who live there, but their families, the people who work there. It's, it, it gives you a kind of a window into society in, in an in a interesting, in a very interesting way. Yeah, really well, and, I, and I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, as a society, we can, we can take um, some, we can do some proactive stuff ourselves and plan for a future where, as I said earlier, I mentioned to you guys off off mic that I believe it's one out of 59 kids now are being diagnosed with autism. Most of them will be able to live their own independent lives, but some of them will not be able to. They'll have to live in a group home environment, assisted living environment. And uh, I don't know as a society that we're really preparing for that very expensive uh, future of uh, assisted living for those kids. And I actually saw, I was trying to find it as we were talking last week, I think it was in the journal, a piece saying, you know, maybe large-scale institutions aren't so bad, you know, given the cost they yeah. save. So there might be a, Lord. a movement from some who uh, don't remember the stories yeah. of Willowbrook. We'll be pendulum swinging yeah. back and forth. Say, well, yeah. well, you save a lot of money putting all these folks in one large institution, but the abuses that can occur um, when there's... Um, you know, warehousing. That's yeah, what basically, warehousing to is warehousing yeah. people. And then, as he was talking about the labor shortages, I was wondering is if this was like another thing, like where we used to rely on religious sisters and oh, yeah. nuns to do this yeah. work, and that does not exist anymore, or at the same scale. <laughs> Bring back the draft. And don't make it military. Make it community service. <laughs> right. Well, I want to thank you again for joining us this week. Uh, this is Tim Reedy, joined, of course, by Kevin Clark and Ashley McKinless. Remind you, if you want to learn more about America, you can go to americamagazine.org. Also, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And to subscribe to America, you can call 1-800-627-9533. That's 1-800-627-9533. This is Tim Reedy. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for listening to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.